everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, we'll be diving into the very disturbing life of a serial killing nurse. It's been a little while since we've dived into a serial killer's life, but that's what we're going to be looking at today is Charles Cullen, a very, very disturbed individual to say the least. But before we get into that, I have a couple announcements I wanted to run through real quick. First of all, I'm really excited because I know I have hinted in the past that I am working on a Lights Out plush, which I'm so excited is finally ready to unveil right now. The plush is named Skelly, and I spent a lot of time designing this guy. I'm very excited to announce that he's available for purchase at the link below, and it will be for a very limited time. So if you want to purchase this limited edition Lights Out plush, do it right now because this will not be around forever. This is an exclusive partnership I did with a company called Makeship. So this will not be in my merch store. This is an exclusive thing that I did with them and will only be available for a limited time. So pick up one for yourself and one for a friend. I really appreciate it. I'm really happy with how it turned out. What's really cool about Skelly is that his eyes and the lantern glow in the dark, which is really, really cool. Really happy with it. I hope you are too. So support the show and get your own limited edition lights out skelly plush today but also just merch in general is available at milehighmerch.com there's still some merch left from this last collection and i'm continuing to work on the next collection hopefully coming out this fall and i'll also be bringing back a few designs from the original collection i did i think end of last year which many of you have been asking for me to bring back so just know that that is in the works and hopefully i'll have more updates on that here soon but yeah just had a couple announcements for you i am still at home, as you can see, I'm not in my normal studio. I'm hoping to get back in there in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. I'm thinking maybe another week or two. Um, I'm still at home. I'm still helping out my wife with my new baby. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty tired. No one prepares you for how little sleep you get with a newborn. Um, you just learn how to nap pretty much in like two, three hour increments. So yeah, bear with me. But uh, let's go ahead and dive right into the life of Charles Cullen. So Charles Cullen was born on February 22nd, 1960 in West Orange, New Jersey. He was raised in a big working class Irish Catholic family, and he was the youngest of eight children. Edmund, his father, was a bus driver for a living, and by the time that Charles was born, he was already 56 years old. Soon after Charles was born, his father died, actually, from health complications. Charles was only seven months old when this occurred. So for most of his life, Charles didn't have a father figure to look up to. He would later recall his childhood as quote-unquote miserable, and he was constantly bullied by his schoolmates and his sister's boyfriends. Charles only saw life as one day of suffering after the next, and when he was only nine years old, he began having suicidal thoughts. One day, Charles took out his chemistry set, but instead of playing with it, he began drinking a random concoction of chemicals, hoping to end his life. But the chemicals didn't kill him. They only made him incredibly sick. Charles always remembered the first time that he tried to end his life. And he would fantasize about killing himself for many more years. After years of being bullied and living a miserable life, things only got worse. His mother Florence actually ended up getting into a violent car accident, which ended her life on December 6, 1977. Adding insult to injury, the hospital did not immediately inform Charles and his siblings of his mother's death. 
and instead of turning over the body, they ended up cremating her remains without contacting them. Charles was only 17 years old at the time and tried to finish up his senior year of high school. But as you can imagine, going through such tragedy weighed very heavy on him. So he actually ended up dropping out of high school and enlisting in the U.S. Navy. Charles successfully passed basic training, and they planned to assign him to serve on board a submarine. Before joining a submarine crew, the members must pass a rigorous psychological exam to ensure that they can be submerged in a tiny vessel for up to two months at a time, underwater, deep in the ocean. Charles passed the psychological exam with flying colors, and he was later assigned to serve on board the USS Woodrow Wilson. The crew operated in the Atlantic Ocean where the submarine was armed with nuclear missiles. While serving, Charles rose to the rank of Petty Officer Second Class, and he worked with the crew that operated the missiles. But much like his time at school, he didn't fit in with his crewmates. He was constantly hazed and bullied in the Navy, but by now Charles was pretty used to it. He had accepted that life was a brutal test of bullying and putting up with bullshit, but his mental health began to deteriorate. Only a year into his service, his crewmates made a shocking discovery. As they headed into the control room, they found Charles seated at the missile controls. He wore a surgical mask, gloves, and scrubs instead of his Navy uniform. They had no idea why he was dressed like this, or why he was sitting at the nuclear missile controls. The leading petty officer ended up disciplining Charles for this strange behavior, but Charles never explained what the hell he was doing. The commanding officers made the decision to reassign Charles to a different submarine with a low-pressure job, but not long after, Charles attempted suicide again, and they committed him to the Navy psychiatric ward several times over the next few years. He later received a medical discharge from the U.S. Navy in 1984 for undisclosed reasons. After moving back to New Jersey, he quickly found an interest in the medical field. So he enrolled at Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey. He was the only male student at the time. Charles was a bright student, though, and he excelled in his classes. He even won the election for class president. It was only a symbolic position, but he found a place where he could finally thrive. He paid for his classes while working in random donut shops and butcher shops, and he later graduated in 1986 and ended up working in the burn unit at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston. Meanwhile, around this time, He also met a woman named Adrienne Baum. She was his manager at the butcher shop. She had a business degree, and she was working on paying off her student loans. At the time they first met, Adrienne had a boyfriend, but Charles was willing to wait. Months passed, and soon enough, Adrienne broke up with her boyfriend, so Charles made his move. Once they started dating, Charles moved the relationship as fast as he could. He showered her with gifts and acted like the perfect boyfriend in front of her family. Anything she mentioned liking, Charles went out and bought it for her immediately. To Adrian, Charles seemed like the boyfriend she had always wanted. He worked three jobs, he was a class president, and he was driven about his career. He was the perfect package, or at least that's what it looked like from the outside. Only six months after their first date, though, Charles proposed. And the week after he graduated nursing school, they rented a hall in Livingston, New Jersey and got married. They actually spent their honeymoon in Niagara Falls, and everything seemed to be coming together like a fairy tale. But then came the first odd thing in their marriage. Charles wanted to go home one day early during their honeymoon. He wanted to start his new job at the burn unit as soon as possible, 
Even though the hospital told him he could have as much time as he wanted for his honeymoon, Charles insisted on going home a day early. He couldn't wait to get to work. His wife was supportive and agreed to go home early. To her, Charles was just driven, and she liked that about him. The second major red flag was when they got two Yorkshire Terriers in their home. Adrian would wake up in the middle of the night to the dog screeching. Charles had taken them to the basement and brutally abused them numerous times. When Adrian confronted him, he told her this was how he trained them, and so she turned a blind eye. Unfortunately, this was only the beginning of a long, fucked-up list of things Charles would do over the next several years of their marriage. As he dove into his work, Charles knew that the ICU in any hospital was known for sudden deaths. The staff constantly worked around a ton of emergencies that were often life-and-death situations. Most of the patients are in a fragile state, and the staff constantly has to monitor the life support systems. Many times they had patients that were stable, but all of a sudden they died, since Charles knew that these patients were already in a fragile state. He began thinking of ways to easily kill them. He was known as a smart nurse who did his job well, and he knew no one would bat an eye as he walked around the hospital pretending to do his job. All the wild, disturbing fantasies corrupted his mind, and the beating of the dogs at home wasn't enough to satisfy him. As he looked around at the patients in the ICU, all he saw were potential victims. He knew the system well enough. He knew where the hospital kept its lethal drugs. He knew when the doctors and nurses would be in and out of patients' rooms. And most importantly, he knew that he could get away with murder. After only two years of working at the hospital, Charles got up the courage to commit his first murder. On June 11, 1988, Judge John Yango Sr. had been admitted to the hospital after suffering an allergic reaction to a blood-thinning drug. He had been hooked up to an IV, patiently recovering in his hospital room when Charles entered. Seeing that Charles was a nurse, John didn't second-guess why the man was in his room, and he watched as Charles went up to his IV and added something to it. He figured it was just some sort of typical medication for his allergic reaction, but it was actually a dose of medication large enough to kill him. As John lay helpless on his hospital bed, the huge dose of medication surged through his bloodstream, and within minutes, his heart stopped beating. When the other hospital staff rushed to his room and found him dead, they later figured it was just another random case where the patient suddenly took a turn for the worse. They had no idea, though, that a killer was stalking the halls of their hospital. And as for the judge, this would be the first in a slew of secret murders that would plague every hospital Charles worked at. Day after day, Charles prowled around the ICU while on a shift. He poked his head in each room, looking for his next victim. The sicker, the better. He soon found an AIDS patient sitting alone in the room. All the other nurses and doctors were out of the room for now, and the nearby hallway was clear. So Charles stole a large dose of insulin from the hospital supply and snuck into the patient's room, Helpless, the patient rested between a state of being awake and asleep, as they were already on a combination of different drugs. Charles walked up to his bedside and filled his IV with a huge dose of insulin. Within seconds, Charles vanished from the room, and the patient died soon after. During Charles' time at St. Barnabas Medical Center, he killed at least 11 patients over five years. But by the end of 1991, Hospital authorities began to suspect Charles was contaminating IV bags, so he quickly left the hospital in January of 1992 and fled 70 miles west to Phillipsburg, New Jersey with his wife, and it was like nothing had ever happened. 
Only a month after leaving St. Barnabas, he found a new position at Warren Hospital. Meanwhile, his former employees didn't pursue him. After all the dead bodies that he had left behind, he ended up getting away with it. So Charles moved on and found his new hunting grounds. He decided to target sick older women since they couldn't put up a fight. His weapon of choice became digoxin, a common heart medication. He snuck into the locked cabinets that stored the drug and stole lethal doses of it. He then snuck into women's rooms at night after their families left. Like always, he took the IV and added lethal doses of medication. Two women quickly died. But sometimes the patients didn't always die after the first dose. He sometimes didn't use enough to kill them. So his third victim at Warren Hospital, Helen Dean, had noticed Charles silently entering her room one night. He was a nurse, so he didn't look out of place, but Helen could tell that something was off about him. He barely even looked at her as he came in. Shortly after, he began poking her leg with a needle and giving her mysterious medication late at night. The next day, the 91-year-old woman was still alive after the injection. The dose hadn't been enough to kill her. When her son and his family came to visit the next day, she told him that a sneaky male nurse had come into her room and slipped her medication. But her family, along with the hospital staff, ignored her comment. They figured that she was just confused in her old age and poor health. But by the next day, she was dead from a mysterious overdose. Her son Harry knew that his mother wasn't lying about the sneaky male nurse. He felt guilty that he didn't believe his mother, so he vowed to find her killer. Unfortunately, Harry later passed away from cancer in 2001, and he never ended up finding Charles. And because of this, Charles did not stop killing. His troubles at home escalated his madness. His wife Adrian became fed up with his sneaky behavior and the terrible ways he treated his family. So she filed for divorce in January of 1993. She also later filed two domestic violence complaints against him. These complaints, along with the divorce papers, spoke about how Charles was an alcoholic who abused his dogs. He forced them into bowling ball bags and trash cans and kept them there for hours. She also wrote about how he poured lighter fluid into other people's drinks and made prank phone calls to funeral homes. All the while, Adrian had actually given birth to two daughters that they were trying to raise through the madness. After they separated, Charles and Adrian decided to share custody of the children. Charles moved out and found a basement apartment in Schaefer Avenue in Phillipsburg. His life as a family man was over, but his life as a serial killer was just getting started. After all the family drama, Charles was so exhausted that he wanted to quit nursing, but his court-ordered child support payments forced him to keep his job. After his wife Adrian filed for divorce, the dust from their ugly separation settled, and Charles quickly spun out of control. Besides the murders, now he began stalking a female coworker, and in March of 1993, he broke into his coworker's home at night while she and her young son were fast asleep. Charles wandered around the house and quietly looked at them while they slept. He then left the house without waking them. When she woke up the next day, nothing was missing, but she noticed that the door was unlocked and a few items had been moved. He then began calling her on the phone nonstop and left countless rambling voicemails. He also followed her at work and even around town. His behavior had become so disturbing that she filed a formal complaint with the police, and Charles was arrested for stalking the woman, and he attempted suicide again a few days later. When he was interrogated by police, he pleaded guilty to trespassing, and the court put him on a year's probation. He took two months off of work and checked himself into two different psychiatric facilities for depression. 
but by the end of that year, he had attempted suicide two more times. Charles eventually quit his job at the Warren Hospital in December of 1993. The child support payments had started to add up, so he had found another job in Hunter Medical Center's ICU in Rarity Township, New Jersey. And during the first two years at his new job, there was no evidence that Charles murdered anyone. For whatever reason, he stopped his killing spree. But sadly, this wouldn't last. By 1996, he was back to killing. His victims continued to be mostly older adults, and he used the same strategy for killing them. By the end of 1996, he had killed at least five more people. A farmer, an attorney, a store clerk, a correctional supervisor, and a public school teacher were all secretly murdered as they lay helpless on their hospital beds. After their deaths, he left that hospital and moved to another called Morris Memorial Hospital in Morris, New Jersey. But he was soon fired in August of 1997 for poor performance, and he became unemployed for six months, and he stopped making his child support payments. His debt began to add up, and his depression got worse by the day. Thoughts of suicide flooded his head, and before the end of the year, he showed up at his old workplace emergency room in Warren Hospital, and he begged the staff to treat him for depression. So they admitted him to the psychiatric facility where he didn't stay long. He said that his mental health hadn't improved and they weren't helping him at all. Clearly, he wasn't any better because after he returned home, he suffered from several mental breakdowns. Neighbors complained about him chasing cats down the street at night, yelling at the top of his lungs. Other times he was seen wandering around talking to himself or making faces at people as they walked by. After suffering a serious mental breakdown, he slowly recovered. And in February of 1998, he found a job at the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allenton, Pennsylvania. Only a few months later, he declared bankruptcy, and he was nearly $67,000 in debt. He worked in a ward where the patients needed ventilators to breathe, and although he didn't kill anyone during this job, others noticed his strange, unethical behavior. One of his coworkers spotted him entering a patient's room with syringes in his hand. No injections were made, but the patient ended up with a broken arm after Charles left the room. Because of this, he was immediately fired in October of 1998. Other coworkers accused him of giving patients drugs at unscheduled times, but luckily he failed to kill anyone. Even though he was fired from his last job, he still found more work in November of 1998. His new job was at the Elston Hospital in Elston, Pennsylvania, and again he began killing. Then on December 30th, he ended up killing another 78-year-old patient with digoxin. The autopsy clearly showed a lethal amount of the drug in the victim's system, but nothing pointed to Charles as a suspect. Charles just kept getting away with murder, and no one was catching on. Charles' rampage didn't stop here. In fact, he kept bouncing around from job to job since there was such a huge nurse shortage during this time. And before we get into his next job, I'm going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Like I said before, Charles was able to go from job to job to job. And you would think that eventually these jobs would start talking to each other and pull references whenever he'd apply for a new nursing job. Well, at the time, I guess that wasn't a big thing because there was such a big nurse shortage that they just kind of took whoever was qualified and Charles was qualified. And they didn't even bother to look into his background at, you know, the fact that he got fired from multiple hospitals, that he was, you know, actually talking to his previous bosses and managers to see what kind of employee was just wasn't a thing. Hospitals were just desperate to hire more nurses 
And Charles took full advantage of this. So he actually bounced from two more hospitals and he was able to kill six more people. And at the turn of the century, he attempted suicide again. This time he rolled a charcoal grill into his bathroom and placed it into his bathtub. He then dumped a bunch of charcoal inside, lit it on fire, and hoped that the carbon monoxide gas would kill him. Of course, neighbors smelled the smoke and they called 911. And when first responders arrived, they found Charles on the bathroom floor still breathing and they transported him to the hospital and eventually moved him to a psychiatric facility. Over the years though, Charles realized that he had tried to kill himself as many as 20 times, maybe more. And later he said that if he had successfully killed himself with his chemistry set when he was nine years old, all these victims could have been spared. After only spending a day at the psychiatric facility, he returned home, which meant that he went back to killing. It wasn't until a coworker at St. Luke's Hospital in Pennsylvania found vials of used medication in a disposal bin that hospital staff finally suspected something was terribly wrong. The used vials were from drugs that had no value outside the hospital, and they weren't used recreationally. So they figured that they were being used for something more sinister. After a short investigation, they discovered that Charles Cullen had been taking the medication, but they didn't know exactly what he had done with it. He was immediately fired and escorted from the building in June 2002. Since the hospital administration wasn't going to do anything besides fire him, Charles' ex-coworkers decided to do something about it. Seven of the nurses who had worked with him met with the local district attorney and alerted the police. They didn't have proof, but they accused Charles of using drugs to kill his patients. They said that Charles had been present for nearly two-thirds of all the deaths in the hospital. So the police opened up a small investigation but failed to look into Charles' past. If they had at least looked into his background a bit, they would have easily connected the dots. But the case was actually dropped nine months later for lack of evidence. And again, Charles was out there bouncing from hospital to hospital. In September of 2002, he found a job at Somerset Medical Center in Somerset, New Jersey. His depression had only worsened over time. Even though he had begun dating a local woman, his suicidal thoughts became rampant and his murders escalated. He actually murdered eight more patients at this hospital. Among the victims were two World War II veterans and a Korean War veteran. One of the World War II veterans had even helped liberate a concentration camp in Europe during his service, and his fate ended in the hands of a homicidal maniac. Hospital administrators had been warned by Charles' previous coworkers, but little was done. Luckily, rumors began to spread, and many of Charles' current coworkers didn't trust him any longer. Breadcrumb trails from a sneaky behavior had been left behind. The hospital's computer system showed that Charles was accessing the records of patients he wasn't assigned to. Others were seeing him enter patients' rooms he wasn't assigned to. And the computerized drug dispensing cabinets revealed that Charles had been requesting medications that patients had been prescribed. The state then hired an investigator in 2003 to look into the deaths of the patients. The pathologist reported that after reviewing 67 cases, he had no proof of criminal activity. The prosecution wouldn't have a case if they wanted to bring Charles to trial, but all these investigations had been incredibly weak from the get-go. No bodies had been exhumed for analysis, and few autopsies had been performed, and no one had even bothered to interview Charles, which is absolutely mind-blowing. But luckily, the investigation didn't stop there. In July of 2003, the executive director of the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System contacted the hospital that Charles was working at, Somerset Medical Center. They told them that at least four of the suspicious overdoses were most likely caused by an employee that was killing patients. 
but even after the warning, the hospital didn't bother contacting the police until three months later. By then, Charles had killed five more patients and attempted to kill a sixth but failed. State officials decided to penalize the hospital after they failed to report an insulin overdose in August of that year, and when Charles' final victim died of low blood sugar in October, the hospital finally alerted the state authorities. A thorough investigation was finally conducted, revealing Charles' full employment history, and it was finally obvious to investigators that Charles had been involved in multiple deaths. The hospital finally fired Charles on October 31st, 2003. The reason for firing him was for simply lying on his job application, but it didn't end there. Investigators kept him under surveillance for several more weeks until they finally finished their official investigation. And after years of uninterrupted killing, Charles was arrested on one count of murder and one count of attempted murder on December 12th, 2003. Within two days, he had admitted to the murder of Reverend Florian Gall, who was a pastor at a local Roman Catholic church, and he also admitted to another attempted murder. Both of the victims were at his previous job at Somerset, and during the interrogations, Charles eventually told the detectives everything, but only after they offered him a plea deal. He gave them everything after they promised not to seek the death penalty. Charles admitted to murdering as many as 40 patients over 16 years as a nurse, making him one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Four months later, he appeared in court in April 2004, and he ended up pleading guilty before the court to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two more by lethal injection. But of course, Charles only promised to cooperate if they didn't seek the death penalty. And only a month later, he pleaded guilty again to the murder of three patients in New Jersey. In a separate court case in November of 2004, he pleaded guilty yet again, to killing six more patients and trying to kill three more. During these court proceedings, he kept yelling at the judge, telling him to step down from his position. His behavior was so erratic that they finally ordered him to be restrained and gagged for the rest of the proceedings. Finally, 18 years after his first murder, Charles was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences on March 2, 2006, and he won't be eligible for parole until 2403. But his judgment wasn't over. On March 10, 2006, he was brought in for another sentencing hearing. Again, Charles kept yelling through the proceedings, telling his judge to step down. This went on for 30 minutes until they gagged him with cloth and strapped duct tape over his mouth. Even after being gagged, Charles kept trying to scream through the cloth. He sat there listening to the victim's families give their impact statements, and the whole court listened to the grieving families. Through tears, they'd explain how much heartache they went through after their loved one mysteriously died. By the end, the judge gave him an additional six life sentences, coming to a total of 17. He still had a plea deal since he was working with law enforcement to identify all of his other victims, and the plea deal was all or nothing. Either he helped identify his victims and avoided the death penalty, or he gave them nothing, and the prosecutors could try their best to convict him on the little evidence that they had. The justice system was under the pressure of countless families who wanted to know what happened to their loved ones, so they offered the deal and Charles gave them everything. He listed every victim he could remember. He also told them how he chose his victims and killed them. So in the end, Charles wasn't given the death sentence, but he would remain in prison for the rest of his life. And today, he's currently being held at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. In 2006, he said he wanted to atone to his sins by donating one of his kidneys to an ex-girlfriend's brother. 
To get the donation approved, he refused to cooperate with investigators or appear at legal hearings. They eventually caved and allowed him to donate the kidney. Charles' lawyer admitted that there was a clear level of irony in the situation. A man known for killing so many hospital patients now wanted to save one by donating his kidney. After the donation, Charles got back to the investigators' interviews and legal hearings. Many still wanted to understand Charles' motive and how he was able to move from hospital to hospital and kill so many people. To this day, Charles Cullen's case is one of the most horrific examples of healthcare serial killers. From the beginning, Charles was strategic about his murders. He made sure to use digoxin and insulin as his weapons of choice. This was because they had little recreational use. Outside of a medical setting, there was almost no reason to use these drugs. So when they went missing, it didn't attract a lot of attention. During the countless interrogations, everyone wanted to know why he did what he did. His excuse was that he killed the patients with an overdose to spare them from being coded. In hospital terms, this meant going into cardiac arrest, which is a code blue emergency. He said he couldn't bear to witness his fellow doctors and nurses trying to save a victim's life. He said that he gave them lethal doses so that he could end their suffering, and he didn't want hospital personnel to dehumanize them. But most people call bullshit on this excuse. Plenty of his victims weren't even terminal. His first victim had a simple allergic reaction, and he decided to kill him anyway. Many, like the Catholic pastor, were recovering and expected to go home soon before Charles killed them. Even a co-worker described many of his victims as people who were recovering and getting ready to be discharged from the hospital. They also called bullshit on the excuse that he wanted to end their suffering because, as the victims overdosed, many of them suffered horribly before their death. He also later admitted that his decision to kill was made on impulse, rather than a decision of mercy. Many suggest that he made up these lies to try and look good in front of the jury, but deep down he was disturbed, and he got off on secretly killing patients. After all these murders came to light, it was also obvious that the medical system had a huge problem. Charles Cullen was able to bounce from hospital to hospital undetected. There was a huge lack of requirements to report suspicious behavior by medical workers. Only after 16 years did anyone finally look into Charles' employment history. And at the time, many states didn't give investigators the legal authority to look into workers' previous employers, even though several of the hospitals he worked for suspected him of harming and possibly killing patients, they failed to take legal action. They feared that these incidents would result in massive lawsuits, so they kept it quiet. But in the end, after his conviction, many of the hospitals that he worked at were sued by the families of the victims anyway. All of the settlements against the New Jersey hospitals were settled out of court, and their files are sealed. Since the hospital's administrations didn't want to openly investigate Charles, co-workers tried to take it upon themselves to do something about it. So what they heard about Charles only passed through rumors. At Sacred Heart Hospital in Allenton, where he worked in 2001, one of his co-workers had heard about the rumors that Charles had killed and assaulted his patients. Other nurses at the hospital gathered together and threatened to quit if Charles wasn't fired immediately. Luckily, he was. But as always... He just moved on to the next hospital. After the fallout of his conviction, it was clear that something had to change. 37 states across the U.S. adopted new laws after Charles' conviction. These laws encouraged hospital employers to give honest evaluations of their workers, and they were given certain legal protections when reporting unethical behavior. Some of these laws even required hospitals to report details on their employees for complaints and disciplinary records. These records would be kept on file for at least seven years, 
so that other hospital employers could see them. But unfortunately, healthcare serial killers are nothing new, and those who harm their patients are overwhelmingly known to be men. The profession seems to attract people who are pathologically obsessed with the concept of life and death, and some believe that the healthcare profession attracts more serial killers than all other professions combined. Many of these killers hide in plain sight, just like Charles. They go about their business under the mask of a trusted healthcare worker, but underneath the mask, they're grim reapers ready to take the lives of helpless victims in hospital beds. Some of these killers are even considered angels of death. Many have convinced themselves that they were relieving the patients from their pain and suffering. But in Charles' case, many believe he only killed for the thrill of it. There was no mercy in his actions, and he took the lives of many people who were getting ready to return home to their families and loved ones. And sadly, at least 40 victims died at the hands of Charles Cullen. And his mark on history has shown us just how easy it is to get away with murder while wearing scrubs and a stethoscope. These angel of death serial killers to me are some of the scariest because again, they are hiding in plain sight. I mean, I was just in the hospital for the birth of my child and it's amazing how much just trust you put in immediately into nurses and doctors who you have met for the first time. And you just assume that they do this because they want to take care of people. They do it for the love of medicine and 99.9% of them, that's exactly what they're there for. And I mean, my experience in the hospital is absolutely amazing. Nurses in general are amazing people. I couldn't imagine doing that job. And just they're some of the kindest, most just loving and caring people you'll ever meet. And it's scary to think that among all of those good people, there could be that one bad apple that hides in plain sight and just looks for opportunities to kill when they can. And it just goes to show that if you feel uncomfortable about anything in the hospital that you say something about it or you see something, get the charge nurse and tell the charge nurse who then, you know, do what they need to do to get another nurse put on, you know, assigned to your room. But it's just crazy to think that this sort of thing happened. I can't believe he got access to the medications and correct me if I'm wrong out there, any nurses or healthcare professionals, but I believe medications have to go through the pharmacy now, right? Like there's not just cabinets where you can just pull uh, medications. There might be in some hospitals, but I think I know in the hospital we were just in all the medications when the nurses would order it would actually come straight from the pharmacy. So the pharmacy would actually have to um, process the medications. It wasn't the nurses going to a cabinet per se and getting the medications for the IV. Um, At least that's, what I understand. I mean, I could be completely wrong about that, but I'm interested to hear from any of you guys out there that are nurses or healthcare professionals, how, you know, after hearing Charles's case and what he did, is this even possible today? Is it possible for a nurse to, to do this, to go and get access to medications like insulin and digoxin, I think is how you pronounce it and administer that without raising any red flags or is there approval process? Is there some type of checks and balances? I'm really curious because this is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying that Charles was able to go on as long as he did. And it's crazy that he was able to go from hospital, hospital, hospital and kill patients. And nobody had any idea for so long. It's just so tragic to think about these poor victims, families, and the fact that 
their their loved ones they thought were getting better and that they were going to come home and be recovered and yet they died mysteriously of of these overdoses and various conditions and it's like i can only imagine how confusing and painful it would have been to get the news that your loved one who you thought was going home the next day all of a sudden suffered from this mysterious overdose from medication or something and and now they're no longer with you i mean that's just so tragic and charles cullen is a mentally deranged individual. I mean, he clearly has a lot of mental conditions that probably have never been diagnosed. And I mean, just the mere fact that he tried to commit suicide so many times just goes to show his mental health state. I'm, which is weird though. Cause it's like he committed, he attempted to commit suicide so many times, but failed so many times. And it's like, was he really actually trying to kill himself? Cause there are ways to do that very efficiently. Yet he continued to do all these wild, bizarre ways with the charcoal barbecue in the bath. I mean, it's just, it's very weird that his whole thing is weird and it makes you wonder if he actually is mentally deranged and mentally ill, or if he's just like this evil genius type individual who wants to create the illusion that he's mentally deranged and ill and everything else, which is what he tried to do in order to help himself through his trial. But it's clear to me that because he was able to cooperate and he remembered all the details and he specifically was fighting against the death penalty, which makes no sense considering the guy wanted to kill himself a million times yet. Why not just accept the death penalty at that point? If I mean, that'll take care of the the mission that you've been on your whole life. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's a very bizarre situation. I want to know what you think about it is he an evil genius and not mentally ill or is he just mentally deranged and all of this is a result of uh, mental illness. But honestly, in my opinion, I believe he's just an evil genius type of individual. I don't really buy the mentally ill thing. I think he knew exactly what he was doing the entire time and he got off on it. He got a thrill out of it. He was bullied his whole childhood. I think that really comes into play here. And ultimately this is his payback. And he tried to mask it under being this like, oh, you know, I'm just relieving these people of their pain and suffering and stuff. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. And I think this was all about him and him getting off and him getting the, this rush and control over these people by being a nurse. And that's why he became a nurse was that he knew that this would be a perfect opportunity to kill people and do it in a way that he could get away with it. And I think once he figured that out, it was like, oh, this is it. This is perfect. And honestly, if he hadn't become a nurse and killed people, I think he would have still became a serial killer in some other way or other profession and found a way to kill people. I mean, it's very clear that this is what he wanted to do and he wanted to inflict pain and suffering on as many people as possible because he was in pain and he's, you know, he's not mentally in the right place. But let me know your thoughts on this one. This is a very, very disturbing one. And as always, pay tribute to these victims. There's 40 of them who died at the hands of Charles Cullen. If I can find some of their pictures, I'll put them up here now, but can't even imagine what these families went through. But ultimately I'm glad that Charles Cullen is in prison for the rest of his life. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of lights out and I'll see you next time until then lights out everybody. <laughs>